welcome you this morning to jump into the river of the Holy Spirit. Let it move upon your heart. There is a river where goodness flows. There is a fountain that drowns sorrows. There is an ocean deeper than fear. The tide is rising, rising. There is a current stirring deep inside. It's overflowing from the heart of God. The flood of heaven crashing over us. The tide is rising.
Every 
that man's mic on for just a second. <laughs> <laughs> Father God, I just thank you so much for this time, for this space, um, for the peace you bring, for the hope you bring, for your love. Uh, God, bless this service, bless our hearts, open our ears, open our spiritual ears to hear what Pastor Eric has for us today. In your precious name I pray, amen. 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 Thanks, Josh. Well, welcome. It's so good to see many of your faces. I'm so proud of you for getting out of bed early today, or at least it feels early. I, I used to look forward to this round of daylight savings time because when you have really small kids, they wake up at all hours of the night, and so you're like happy for an extra hour where they're sleeping in, you can get stuff done. Now it's hard to get our kids out of bed. So now it's kind of flipped, and we're just like, oh, come on. Now we're all struggling. So anyway, Glad that you're here. For those of you who are joining us at home, I am so glad that you're with us. Um, and it's, I'm hopeful because a year ago when we went into the COVID lockdowns, 
it was really, really difficult to let go of this. It was, it was difficult for me, probably the most difficult part was not being able to see many of your faces on a weekly basis. And it's so good to see at least half of your faces um, in here this morning. And for those of you who are at home, I know that there's there are many, many very good reasons to continue to stay at home. And if it is something where there are pre-existing conditions or you just don't at this point feel that it is okay for you to be coming out, please continue to stream at home. But there's one thing that I recognize that some of us are struggling with as we have begun to talk to people who are coming back. Probably the biggest impediment that we didn't anticipate was that after a year, of, of watching church online where you can get up at any point and you're not interrupting people or you can start it at any point or you can pause when you get bored of listening and move on to something else. You can check your phone or you don't even have to put on clothes. You can be in your sweats, right? It's really difficult to come back to this. And so may I simply suggest that if the primary reason you're now staying home is because of comfort, Putting on pants could be your spiritual act of worship. <laughs> Combing your hair and brushing your teeth. The, the hair is for us. The teeth is for you. You're wearing the mask, all right? That could be your spiritual act of worship. And let me say that the one thing I keep hearing over and over from people is that it, there is something different about worshiping together than at home. As wonderful as our worship is, and as much as we can get out of it at home, there's something different about worshiping with your, your, your church family. So, if you're at home, in no way am I trying to guilt you into anything. This is between you and the Lord. But if comfort is your primary reason for staying home at this point, it may be time for you to come home. Okay? It might be time for you to get up a little bit early and come and be with us. And we have Easter coming up, guys. I'm really excited about this because last Easter we weren't able to be. It was without a doubt, as fun as it was, it was without a doubt the most anticlimactic Easter ever. Seriously, because the tech people up in the top don't know how to be excited. So I finished the Easter message and I seriously go, have a wonderful day. And then it's silence and they all go to their computers and they're doing this. And I'm like, well, I guess I'll go home and do, you know, laundry or something. Literally nothing. And then I got home and my wife had been so preoccupied with trying to keep my kids from killing one another that she hadn't even been able to fully engage in it. So I'm just like, well, okay. So this Easter, we are not going to encounter that. I'm so excited. God willing, we get to be together on Good Friday. We're having one Good Friday service both here in person and also live streaming at 7 p.m. so that you guys can go, get off of work, have dinner, and then come and be with us. It'll be about an hour long. Good Friday, quite honestly, is one of my absolute favorite um, services all year. There's something powerful. You can't have Easter without Good Friday, and so I really am looking forward to that. And then Easter Sunday, we're going to do something different this year in that we are going to do not one, but two services. And this is in part to acknowledge the fact that we're still not fully out from under COVID protocol. We are going to continue to have the separation between our seats. We're going to continue to try to keep separation. So that's why we're doing two services. Not because we feel like we need to pack out two services, but because we just want to make sure that we're being cautious while at the same time being together. So 9 o'clock and 11 o'clock. And what I need you guys to begin considering is what service are you going to come to? My guess is 
the majority of people who are not currently attending a church will probably lean towards 9 o'clock. So if you don't care, may I ask you to join us in the 11 o'clock service so that you create space for those who will probably just find themselves moseying into the 9. But if, only, if 9 o'clock is the only one that works for you, please come and join us. Please invite people in your spheres of influence. It's time for God's family to kind of come back together and be together and celebrate that. And we have a whole lot of making up to do because last year we have to make up for how anticlimactic it was. I can't wait to worship and celebrate with you guys. That's all I got. But, but let's go ahead and dive into scripture. If you have a Bible, turn with me to John chapter 4. Last week, Jeff introduced us to a, a, a new person in this biblical narrative. It's a woman who he meets at a well, but she's not just any woman. She is a Samaritan woman. And Jeff kind of made the point that this was a very unexpected, very controversial interaction that Jesus has. But he didn't really explain the full extent of it. And he teased last week that I was going to tell you why it was so controversial. No pressure or anything, right? But, but here's what I do recognize. When we lack context, we're 2,000 years removed from Jesus's earthly ministry, 2,000 years removed from what was going on. And so oftentimes, the story gets passed down to us, but the context gets lost. And at that point, these characters start to feel two-dimensional. She's a Samaritan. You don't interact with Samaritans. But Jesus interacts with her. Oh, it's amazing. And we just, it, it just kind of feels a little bit like a story. And so what I want to do is I want to take a five-minute detour back into history to paint a picture of why Jesus interacting with not just a woman, but a Samaritan woman especially was such a big deal. Why it was so audacious. So, about a thousand years prior to this interaction, when the people of Israel finally took over the promised land as God had promised he would send them, they were a unified country. There were 12 tribes that took up the whole of the promised land. And they made Jerusalem their capital. That was where both the temple was at, so it was their spiritual capital, but it was also their political capital. This is where all the decisions were being made. This is where the the, the palace was. This is where all the taxes flowed in there to help with all the building projects. And for about a hundred years, this was the status quo through Saul's reign, through King David's reign, and through Solomon's reign. A unified kingdom is what we experience. But when Solomon died, things changed. Because his son Rehoboam took over, and at that point, the northern ten tribes came down to Rehoboam and said, Hey, listen, we understand your dad Solomon loved to build things. He built the temple, he built the palaces, he built out Jerusalem. We understand why he did it. But can we take a break from the taxes, please? And can we take a break from all of the rules that you guys keep imposing on the northern tribes? And Rehoboam, after some thought, says, Heck no. If you thought that my father's arm was heavy, my little pinky is heavier than his entire arm. You think he taxed you heavily? Just you wait, because the taxes are coming. And that was a bridge too far for the northern ten tribes. And that precipitated a split in the kingdoms of Israel. And so here you have a map. 
This is the divided kingdom that takes place about a hundred years after Israel was established as a nation. You have the lower two tribes of Judah, where Jerusalem, you kind of see that little dot right at the top of the red, that was the capital of the lower two tribes. That was known as Judah. And then the ten tribes seceded from the unified union and became what we call Israel. And of course, they don't want Jerusalem to be their capital. So they make a, a, a city called Samaria, which was a hill with a small town on it, and they built it out, and they made that their capital city. And why did they choose Samaria, from which the whole region ultimately got its name? They chose it because it was well defended. They chose it because it was right along the artery where people who were traveling from Jerusalem up to the Galilean region would pass through. The major thoroughfare, like think of California, it was the five freeway went right past Samaria, and the hill of Samaria overlooked it. So, of course, that's where you're going to stick your capital. And this was the status quo. You have a northern tribe. You have a southern kingdom. The unfortunate thing is when, when the people of Israel had moved into the promised land, God had warned them, listen, if you guys don't continue to keep your eyes on me and follow me, if you begin to become enamored with the other nations and make treaties with them and begin to worship their kings and worship, or I'm sorry, worship their gods, then I'm going to give you over to them. But if you remain faithful to me, I will, I will protect you. Well, of course, neither of those kingdoms kept their eyes on God. The northern kingdoms, and you can read this through First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles, it, it covers just how ugly it got. The northern kingdoms ran from God. Almost as if they were trying to establish themselves as separate from the southern kingdom of, of Israel. And so, in 722 BC, the nation of Assyria, or the kingdom of Assyria, came in and conquered the northern ten tribes. And they removed most of the people from the land. They took them into captivity to be slaves. And then they imported Gentiles from all of the other nations that they'd conquered into this land to take over the houses, to begin to work the land, so that this area would be productive for the Assyrian kingdom. And of course, when those Gentiles moved in, they carried with them all of their pagan beliefs, all of the gods that they had worshipped in their homelands, all of their idols, they brought them with them. But what they found is that not all of the northern Israelites left. There was still a remnant there, and that remnant began to intermarry with the Gentile invaders. They began to have offspring, and those offspring were kind of a mix between Judaism and paganism. They were worshiping both the God of Israel, but they were also worshiping the, the foreign gods. And these became known as the Samaritans, the offspring between Jews and Gentiles living in that Samaritan region. About 150 years after the northern kingdom was conquered, the southern kingdom also fell. It fell to Babylon. And for 70 years, they spent in exile in Babylon. We can read about it in Jeremiah, some of the stuff that the groaning, you know, we remember when he said, when we, we read, for I know the, the plans I have for you, the Lord says, plans to prosper you, not to harm you, and all that. That's actually spoken to a people who find themselves in captivity in Babylon. Not to us. We can still get stuff out of it, but we have to remember where it was originally spoken to. They found themselves for 70 years exiled from their land. 
But then something miraculous happened. The nation of Babylon was overwhelmed and overcome by the Persian kingdom, and the Persian king actually allowed the Jews to return home. We read about this in the book of Ezra and Nehemiah. They were allowed to go home and to begin to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem and the temple of Jerusalem, allowed to begin to reestablish and rebuild their land. But this is where the bad blood between Jews and Samaritans begins. Because when the Jewish exiles began to return back to Judah, the, 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 the southern kingdom, the northern Jews, the Samaritans, welcomed them with open arms. Brothers, sisters, you're home. They were excited to see them. They wanted to join in, the, in, in helping rebuild. But the Jewish exiles didn't see them as brothers and sisters. They saw them as traitors to Judaism. They saw them as people who had completely compromised their faith by intermarrying with pagan interlopers and, began, and that they had been tarnished by their worship of pagan idolatry. And so when the, the Samaritans said, we want to help in the rebuilding efforts, the Jewish exiles said, yeah, no thanks. You have no part in this. And in that moment, it was like a switch got flipped. And the Samaritans went from wanting to help to wanting to hinder. You might read about it in the book of Nehemiah, particularly like Nehemiah chapter 4, where you've got this guy Sanballat, who is himself a Samaritan, a really well-to-do Samaritan, who goes from wanting to help to becoming a major impediment to the rebuilding effort. He literally is trying to stir up problems with the Persian king to get the Persian king to, to stop the rebuilding effort. And when that doesn't work, when he can't get them to stop rebuilding, Sanballat and the Samaritans say, fine, we'll build our own temple. And they go to a hill in Samaria, Mount Gerizim, and they build their own temple to rival that in Jerusalem. Remember when the Samaritan woman says, hey, we're not sure where to worship. Our forefathers say we worship on this mountain, Mount Gerizim, but you Jews say you worship in Jerusalem. That's what she was talking about, was these different places. But guys, this is just the beginning, because things are about to get really, really bloody and ugly. Because about 130 years before Jesus came on the scene, before he was born, a group of Jewish purists were so fed up with the Samaritan temple that they actually infiltrated Samaritan territory, went to Mount Gerizim, burned the temple to the ground, and, and just totally ravaged the land around the Samaritan temple. You know, that's going to go over really well. That was almost like the, the final straw for the Samaritans. But it wasn't the final straw for the Jews because right around when Jesus was born, some Samaritans snuck into the Jewish temple in Jerusalem on Passover weekend and they began to scatter dead men's bones. People who had been killed, they scattered their bones all around the temple thus making the temple unclean and unfit for people to worship in it during the most important feast day of the year. That would be like somebody breaking into Lighthouse the night before Easter and spray-painting swastikas and curse words all over the walls, right? That would not engender any warm fuzzies between us and the people who did it, and that's exactly what ended up happening with the Jews. It was, it was like the final straw. They looked at Samaritans as less than human. Jews and Samaritans wanted nothing to do with one another. 
In fact, for a Jew, the absolute worst, most derogatory term you could use for anybody was to call him a Samaritan, which is interesting because actually some of the rabbis called Jesus a Samaritan at one point. That is derogatory. They're putting him down. And Jews and Samaritans went out of their way never to interact. In fact, as Jeff pointed out last week, whenever Jews were trying to travel from Jerusalem north up to Galilee, or from Galilee down to Jerusalem, they could have taken the central artery, but they never did. They would always either go to the coast, or they would go to uh, the the Jordan River and kind of travel along there because for them, it was worth going miles out of their way in order to avoid traveling through Samaritan territory. That is what Jesus walks into. That is what Jesus leads his disciples into when he feels compelled to bring his disciples into the Samaritan territory on their way to Galilee. As they're leaving from Jerusalem, he could have taken the, the route along the, the Jordan River. He could have taken them out to the ocean like every other good Jew would do. But Jesus decides to lead his disciples right up the central spine of Jerusalem, or of, of Israel, on his way to Galilee. And it's with that that we're going to jump into this. Because when they get there, and, and this is the thing that really stands out at me. This, this was unexpected, and it th I just want you to put yourself in the sandals of the disciples for a second. Last week, we focused on what this must have been like to have an interaction with Jesus from the Samaritan woman's perspective. Today, we are going to focus solely on what it must have been like for Jesus' disciples. Because remember how last week Jeff pointed out that John suggests that Jesus had to go this way. In fact, that's what John says here, that he had to go through Samaria. That's in verse 4 of chapter 4. But of course, he didn't have to do it. There were two other options, but he felt compelled by God to do it. And last week, Jeff made the point that he did it on the, on the behalf of the Samaritans. But I'm going to suggest to you that he didn't just have to do it because the Samaritans needed him to do it. He had to do it because he had to expose some of these prejudicial boundaries that were already in the hearts of his disciples. He needed, he felt compelled to expose them, point them out, and deal with them so that they could join him in the work that God had given him to do. So this was as much for his disciples as it was for the benefit of the Samaritans. So Jesus leads this band of misfits these former fishermen and tax collectors and zealots into a territory that they have been told over and over, never go there. And when he gets to the Samaritan village, he sends his disciples into town to go buy food for the rest of their journey to Galilee. And while they're in there, he sits down at the well and there's a, a woman who is coming in the heat of the day to draw water. And rather than ignoring her as any good Jew would do, Jesus engages her in conversation. First, she starts talking about water and, 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 and ultimately leads her back around to what he can offer, living water. And then he even goes so far as to share a drink with her out of her water pitcher. 
Can you imagine what the disciples must have felt when they walk up and they see Jesus interacting with this woman and sharing a drink of water with her? Let's pick up the story now in verse 27 of chapter 4. Just as his disciples returned and were surprised to find him talking with a woman, not just any woman, but a Samaritan woman. But no one asked, what do you want or why are you talking with her? I mean, remember, he's their rabbi. When, when you question his motives, typically there's a lesson in there, and they don't want to be the first one to, to learn the lesson the hard way, so they, they, they just kind of let it slide. And then this woman, leaving her water jar, this woman went back to the town and said to the people, come and see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? And the Samaritans become to come out of the town and make their way toward him. We'll, we'll deal with that next week. The, the woman and her interaction with the Samaritan village. Today, I just want to zero in on these disciples. And I want to consider what must have been going through their mind when these good Jewish boys who have been trained early on in their life to be prejudiced towards Samaritans, to stay away from Samaritan villages, not to interact with Samaritans, come back from getting food. They're already in a place that they're uncomfortable with being. And they see their rabbi interacting with a Samaritan, but not just a Samaritan, with a Samaritan woman. And in this culture, it was unbecoming of a rabbi to interact with a single woman in, culturally. This was just a very different culture than we have. No self-respecting rabbi would ever allow themselves to be caught talking either to a Samaritan or a woman. And here Jesus is doing both at the same time. Scandalous, guys. They were scandalized. I'm sure they were like pulling their hair out going, what is going on? Has Jesus jumped the shark? Like, what is, what is the problem here? Does he not see how inappropriate this is? I guarantee you every single one of them was uncomfortable. Every single one of them wanted to pull Jesus aside and say, hey, listen, dude, not a good idea. Don't you realize that this is social suicide? If any Jew... We're to catch you doing this. That's it. Your message is done. But he's their rabbi, so they kind of let it slide. And instead, they say, hey, hey, Jesus, we, we, we brought the food. Let's kind of let, let's let it move on. Okay, that was an uncomfortable interaction, but let's just kind of move on. We brought the food. Are you hungry? Let's keep reading. Verse 31. Meanwhile, his disciples urged him, rabbi, eat something. But Jesus said to them, well, I have food to eat that you know nothing about. And then the disciples said to each other, could someone have brought him food? Let's pause again. Because as we're going to see as we continue through John, people over and over and over again misunderstand what Jesus says. Nicodemus misunderstood him, thinking that you had to be literally born a second time from your mother's womb. Uh, awkward, and all the mothers in the room say, thank you, Jesus, for not talking about that. Um, then you've got the Samaritan woman who completely misunderstood him about the living water, and now you've got the disciples who are totally misunderstanding him about the food, because they go literal with this. They think Jesus is talking about literal food. And they begin to look at them, one another like, where did the food come from? Who gave it to him? Please, please tell me it didn't come from this woman. Please tell me it didn't come from Samaritan. Because there was a well-known Jewish proverb that said, bread from a Samaritan is more unclean than pig's flesh. For a good Jewish person, you know swine is a filthy animal, right? So 
to, to make food that is given to you by a Samaritan as more spiritually unclean than that, you get an idea of the bad blood between Samaritans and Jews. Please tell me that this girl didn't give him food and he didn't eat it. But here's the thing I love about Jesus. He is a teacher. And he recognizes that every step of his journey with his disciples is an opportunity to teach. And so he uses this as an opportunity to teach them what it means to be an ambassador of the kingdom of God everywhere they happen to find themselves. So Jesus says in verse 34, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. My food... What gives me sustenance isn't just real bread or real meat or real vegetables. What gives me sustenance is obeying the words of the Father and carrying out the purpose for which he has. Every time I read that line, I cannot help but think of the interaction Jesus had right after he was baptized, when he was kind of compelled by the Holy Spirit into the wilderness, where he fasts for 40 days and spends time with the Father. And at the end of that time, Satan shows up and begins to tempt him. Satan shows up and begins to question the very thing that God has just spoken over him. Namely, you are my son, whom I love, and with you I'm well pleased. And the very first temptation is, if you really are the son of God, if that's really true, then prove it. Turn these stones into bread. And Jesus responds by quoting Deuteronomy, and he said, man does not live on bread alone but on every word that proceeds from the Father. Man doesn't live simply, we are not sustained simply by what we put into our bodies, but by our relationship with God and obeying him and allowing his values to shape our values. So my food is literally to do the will of the one who sent me and to finish his work. Well, what is his work? At least part of his work is to begin to shine a spotlight on the social boundaries, on the prejudices that had been drawn through the hearts of his own countrymen, his own disciples, the men and women who were following him to expose those impediments that kept them from moving towards other people because they had written them off as less than human or so saturated by the messiness of the world that they were beyond redemption. For the Jews, it was Samaritan the lowest of the low, even lower than tax collectors. But I, I just want to pause for a moment, and I want to ask you a question, and me a question, because I don't think we're a whole lot different from the Israelites. I suspect that there are people in our world that when we think about them, there are prejudicial perspectives that have been developed in our hearts. Maybe they were perspectives that were placed there early on as kids and we were taught to think that way. Maybe they are things that we have learned along the way. Maybe we've been hurt by people or we've been frustrated by people or this last year has just so made us irate that we begin to look at certain people or groups of people as less valuable than others or so completely steeped in the ways of the world that they are simply beyond redemption. Think for just a moment. Who are people like that in your life? That when you think about them, you're not thinking Jesus loves them. You're thinking, God, 
<laughs> Strike them down. Shut them up. Wipe them off of this place of this earth so that your worshipers can rise up. I mean, who are those people in your life? I suspect we all have them. I'm not going to ask you to call them out. But I simply want to remind you of something. What Jesus is doing right here. Come on, Glenn. If, if you're going to play it, play it for all of us. <laughs> Just play it. What? That's all right. That's all right. For, for, the, for the seeing impaired, sometimes you need to have the, the, the word read to you. I love you. So who are the Samaritans in your life? Because here's the thing. Here's the point that Jesus is driving at for his disciples, but it's also for us. He's making the point that nobody, nobody is beyond redemption. Nobody has so, been so steeped in the world that God does not love them and desire that they would come and be reconciled to him. And what he's about to do is not just to kind of expose those boundaries. He's already blown right past it with his interaction with this woman. But what he's about to do is invite them to join him in actually moving towards the very people that they want to run from. And he's going to do so using an analogy that's going to be difficult for our modern ears because our idea of agriculture is somebody else does it, we go to the store and we buy it. And we bring it into our house. Maybe you have a hydroponic thing in your backyard or something like that. Maybe you've grown something. But the reality is, we don't deal with an agrarian society here. And, and there's just, our property's too valuable or something like that. But he's dealing with guys who are very familiar with an agrarian society. They have walked through field upon field upon field of wheat and other things. This is something they're very familiar with. And so as he often does, he uses some things that are right in front of him to make a point. And so he uses an agrarian analogy here. He says, don't you guys have a saying? And this is verse 35. It's still four months until harvest. But I tell you, open your eyes and look at the fields because they're ripe for harvest. Even now, the one who reaps draws a wage and harvests a crop for eternal life so that the sower and the reaper may be glad together. Thus the saying, one sows and another reaps is true. Because I have sent you out to reap what you have not worked for. Others have done the hard work. And you have reaped the benefits of their labor. Now I know that that could be confusing. Because again agrarian society. So let me try to paraphrase this for 21st century Orange County folk who have never dug in the dirt in your life. The disciples find themselves in a place that to their eyes looks like a spiritually barren wasteland. When they see Samaritans walking around, they don't see image bearers of God. They see scrub brush and tumbleweeds that are fit for nothing more than the fire. And Jesus is looking at his disciples and saying, guys, open your eyes and see the world as I see it. Because when I look around, I don't see a wasteland. I see fields that are ripe for harvest. And here's, here's the thing, guys. This might be your first time here, but this is not the first time that my spirit has been here. My, the spirit of my Father God has been active in this place, working in the hearts of these men and women, preparing a place 
preparing the fields for harvest, and you happen to find yourself here at a time when the harvest is ready. So open your eyes and recognize that it's time for a harvest, and I want to invite you to join me in it. But you can't take credit for it because our Father is the one who's been doing it, who's been preparing the harvest. He's the one who has brought you here for just a time as this. But don't write them off. Because they're not weeds. They're wheat. And God has been preparing their hearts for just a time as this. And I have brought you here for just a time like this. Will you join me? For me, as I read this, I cannot help but think about the ways that a lot of us approach evangelism. Because I'm not sure about you. But it's not always that easy sharing my faith. Sometimes I feel like sharing my faith is sowing seeds and it falls on hardened soil. And, 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 so I, and it comes at a cost, too, because a lot of times people are, can, can be a little bit judgmental about people whose perspective, who, who use Jesus as a crutch and all of that kind of stuff. It, it's one of those things where you want to be divisive at a family gathering, talk about politics or religion, right? So we tend to avoid both of those things. And then just post memes on social media that pissed half the people off and you get likes from the other half the people. Sorry that I said pissed in church. My bad. All right. I've been shaped by the world too. So we find ourselves in a position where a lot of us kind of shy away from evangelism, shy away from sharing our faith because sometimes it feels like we're just wasting our energy and, and it comes at a cost. And what I see Jesus reminding me of as I read this last portion of his interaction with his disciples is to remember that a person's journey to faith isn't a momentary thing. It's not like you live in a spiritual vacuum until somebody shares the gospel with you and you accept it. And now all of a sudden you're a Jesus follower and you know everything about what that means. No, that's not how it works. We all know this. For the Samaritans... God had been working on their hearts. He'd been planting seeds of truth, even with their temple, which was misdirected worship. Even with their idolatry, which was misdirected worship, he had been preparing the soil of their hearts, wooing them. We have no idea what the conversations that they had had or the ways he had used others to speak into their lives. But what we do know is that the soil of their heart had been prepared and seeds had been sown and they had taken root so that when Jesus shows up with his disciples, they are ready. And as we're going to see next week, they are ready. But for us, a lot of times when we share our faith, there, there are some of us here who have been pouring into our kids for years. And it feels like those seeds of truth fall on hard soil and aren't penetrating at all. We pray for them and it doesn't feel like the, the water of our prayers is saturating at all. It feels like it just runs off into the gullies of their lives and they just kind of go on being hard soil. And yet the message I hear Jesus saying to you is don't give up hope. Don't stop sharing your faith. Don't stop living it out. Don't stop praying for them. 
some sow and will never see the fruit of their investment, and yet there is fruit. Others of us find ourselves coming alongside people who are in their journey. They've heard, maybe they were raised in a Christian home, but they've kind of wandered far away. And we find ourselves walking with them for a season, long before they ever give their hearts to Jesus. And in a lot of ways, we find ourselves being somebody who is pouring water onto seeds that were planted long ago, and we don't see the fruit. But we are just called to walk with them and to nurture those seeds. And then sometimes, God brings us into somebody's life where there have been people who have come before and have been planting seeds for years upon years upon years, and God has been allowing them to go through difficult things that churned up the soil of their hearts, tilled it up so that it was more receptive. And you happen to find yourself just the right time where they have reached the end of the rope or their rope, and they have said, I need, I need help. And God may tap you on the shoulder at some point and say, you get to walk with this person, but that doesn't mean you can take credit for it. God is the one who gets the credit for it. But the reminder for me is that whether you are somebody that he uses to plant seeds, whether you are somebody that he uses to water and nurture those, those seeds, whether you are the person that he uses to bring them to a point of making a decision and then walking with them as they learn what it looks like to follow Jesus. Because remember, praying a prayer is never the finish line. It is the starting line to a lifetime of following our, our Lord and letting his values shape our values, of us tasting and seeing that he is good and that he is worth following. That doesn't happen when we pray the prayer. That is simply the first step. And it's imperative that many of us come alongside those who are making those first steps and hold them up because the enemy is going to come after them hard. And if you find yourself in, in your kind of spiritual infancy where you've just said yes not too long ago, no, that if you're experiencing spiritual turmoil, if your life is going haywire, you're right on schedule. Because we have an enemy who loves to disrupt. We have an enemy who loves to try to sow weeds to choke out the seeds of hope. So whether you are somebody who God uses to sow seeds, somebody he uses to nurture seeds, or somebody he uses to ultimately bring about the harvest and walk with somebody, we rejoice together, but he gets the glory. That's the point that Jesus is making. But the most important thing for us to remember, if we are going to be used by him, is that we need to submit our entire selves to him, and that includes our prejudices. That includes the walls that have either been built in our hearts through nurture, but through our families or through our societies, through the ways things used to be, or we need to allow those walls to be torn down that we have erected ourselves because we have been hurt. We have been frustrated. We are disgusted. And so there's two things I want to do. The first thing I want to do is there, I, I, I suspect that there is somebody, whether it's in this room or is watching online, that you've been flirting with Jesus for a long time. People have planted seeds, and there have been people who have walked with you and allowed you to kind of grapple with your faith, but quite honestly, you've been holding him at arm's length. Because you are, 
you're pretty, you, you feel pretty confident about being self-sufficient. But you're getting to the point where you recognize that you're just, you're just exhausted trying to be the captain of your own ship. And you're ready to take that first step of following Jesus and seeing if he truly is the way, the truth, and the life. And if that's you, there's nothing magical about accepting his love for you and taking that first step. It's simply a matter of, of, of praying, Jesus, I, I choose to follow you. And that's the first step in a lifetime of learning what it means to allow him to be your Lord. But if this is you, I'm going to pray an example of a prayer. It doesn't have to be the exact words you use. And there's nothing magical about these words. These are simply the cry of a heart that has come to the end of its own rope and says, I need a Savior who's greater than me. So Jesus, thank you for loving me even though I've run very far from you. Thank you for pursuing me. Thank you for your grace. I know I don't deserve it, and yet you give it anyway. Thank you for loving me when I have not been lovable. And I choose to submit my life to you. I choose to let you be the Lord that I follow. May you send your Holy Spirit into me to begin to clean house. Would you throw out the values that this world has planted in my heart and begin to shape your values in me so that the things I do are an outflow of my relationship with you. Jesus, in your name, amen. Again, nothing magical about that. It is simply the cry of somebody who has recognized that they are not capable of, of being in control of their whole life. And that's all of us. I've come to that point, and every single other person I know that's walking with Jesus has come to that point. We're not Christ followers because we're perfect. We're Christ followers because we're the first ones to say, I desperately need a Savior because I am a screw-up. At least that's me. Now, let me speak to those of you who have been following Jesus for a while. Those of you who find yourself in the, in the sandals of the disciples today. Because you and me, like them, have prejudices and perspectives on people that we don't even recognize we carry around with us. And they have been hindering us from moving with compassion and grace towards those people that desperately need to hear the good news because it's good news of great joy for everyone, not just for the in crowd. But in order for us to be ambassadors of that gospel, we need to be willing to allow the Holy Spirit to shine the light of truth on our own hearts and expose our own prejudices. So, if you are willing to bow your heads with me, I'm going to pray a prayer for me and for you as well. Father, I am so thankful that you are gracious. We have tasted and seen your grace because we rely upon it daily. Not just when we were saved, but every single day of our life, we live in a constant state of grace. But God, we confess that we don't have a lot of grace towards others. We have weighed and measured them and found them wanting, and we have written them off, or we have been taught to write them off, whoever them are. Father, I invite you to allow your Holy Spirit to begin to till the soil of our hearts, 
and expose any stones of hatred, any walls of prejudice that have been dividing and separating us from the men and women that you are calling us to move towards. We want to join you in the harvest, whether that's sowing seeds or nurturing seeds or, or harvesting those. But we begin by saying, here I am, Lord. Help yourself to my life. Examine my heart. Show me if there's anything in it that hinders me from being fully involved in what you're doing. Because we want your kingdom to advance and your will to be done. We want to be, we want to be nurtured and nourished by doing your will. Jesus, we pray these things in your holy name. Amen. I'm looking forward to next week. Because next week we get to the punchline. Next week we get to see what one unsuspecting Samaritan woman that the world would write off can do when she's armed with her story. And I'm really excited for that. So let's go ahead and worship our God who loves us, even though we're not all that lovable. Let's worship him together. Say
like that more and more and it's easy to write it off and then we come into our little holy huddle and we have a moment where we're with Jesus and then we go back out into the wasteland but I think today Jesus is reminding us to pick our eyes up and look at it with a new perspective this is not a spiritual wasteland these are fields that are ripe with grain seeds that have been planted generations ago years ago or simply been over the course of this last year with COVID as everything has stirred our lives up and begun to till the soil of their hearts people are ready they need to hear the hope that you have found that I have found because quite honestly they've lost hope or they're just weary of walking by themselves and now as we get to start coming back out of hiding and going back into restaurants and back into gyms. I'm so grateful that as of today, we are back in the red tier and that things are beginning to open up. We can even go to the movies. But of course, we can just stream it at home too, but whatever. But as we begin to emerge and begin to rub shoulders with people, those are not dead men and women. Although they may be spiritually dead now, those are men and women who are created in God's image and he's inviting us to move towards them. And of course, we can't do anything without the Holy Spirit's enablement. So Father, God, would you use us? Would you give us the eyes to see even as we leave this building and we go out into our mission field, into our spheres of influence, back into our homes, back into our neighborhoods, back into our workplaces and our schools. As we begin to dip our toe back into a life we, we knew a year ago. Would you give us the eyes to recognize opportunities to be used by you, either in the sowing, the nurturing, or the harvesting. And God, we, we lift up Easter, Good Friday, and all of that. May that be a line in the sand. May that be a time that we look forward to inviting our neighbors, our family members, the people we've been walking with to join us, whether it's at our house and live streaming it from home or whether it's in person here. God, would you begin to plant seeds and nurture seeds that lead to an eternal trajectory change for the people all around us. We pray these things, Jesus, in your name. Amen. Guys, it, it, some of you, when you came in here, 
were given a card that said, hey, I'm coming 9 o'clock or 11 o'clock, I would love for you to prayerfully consider which one you're coming to, who you think you're, gonna, you're going to invite. If you don't know the answer to it yet, hold on to it. You can bring it next week and let us know. We just want to be prepared. We are going to have child care, or I should say children's ministry, both of those services. So if you have kids, you can come to either one. And I just look forward to getting to worship with you as we look forward to Easter. Have a wonderful week. Take care. We call out to dry bones, come alive, come alive.